Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. In the weeks following my commitment to Christ back in 1996, I had many eye-opening moments as I engaged with my new Christian family. For instance, the mother of my friend who had led me to Christ came up to me one day after church and told me that ever since her daughter started befriending me, she had been praying for me each and every day. How about that? Before I even had an opportunity to hear and to respond to the gospel, my friend's mother has been praying for me every single day. And speaking with some others at church, they told me that they had encouraged my friend several times to share the gospel with me, had encouraged her several times to invite me to church to a, a service or a program that they had going on. And I found this shocking too. Again, before I had met any of these people for the very first time, they were encouraging my friend to share the gospel with me and to bring me to church. Then there was the most shocking revelation of the few weeks following my, my faith in Christ. My friend, who had led me to faith in Christ, told me that she almost didn't tell me about Jesus because she figured that there was absolutely no way that I was going to respond positively to the gospel. Friends, that was more than just a shocking revelation. That was a scary revelation for me. My friend was on the fence about sharing the gospel with me. Can you imagine if she hadn't? Imagine in that moment when she was about to speak up, she just decided, nah, nothing would come of it anyway. Why ruin my friendship? A lot of things would be different. For starters, I wouldn't be your pastor. Probably wouldn't even live in Florida. I wouldn't have my kids. I wouldn't be married to my wife. And if I'm being completely honest, I wouldn't even be the person that you know today. And I would still be utterly lost. You know, to this day, I am tremendously thankful to my friend for sharing the gospel with me. If you know my story, it didn't go well for her when she finally did share the gospel. I got irrationally angry with her. And yet she still didn't abandon the mission. She still invited me to an Easter Sunday service where God got me on the hook. And later that week, I committed my life to Christ. But it's both sad and scary that she almost didn't speak up. In fact, it's even sadder and scarier that this is the norm among American Christians, if we're being honest. In fact, her sharing the gospel with me is what's abnormal. That's what goes against the norm. So why do I say that? Because in reality, only a very small percentage of American Christians is actually engaged in evangelism with any kind of regularity at all. And that includes the Christians in this church, both you and me, and the various churches in our community here in Belglade. Let's be honest. The gospel is meant to go out. The gospel is meant to go out. Consider what we read in the Great Commission passage in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so here we see the emphasis is clearly on making disciples, but how one makes disciples is very clear. The church was not instructed to sit back and wait for someone to ask them about Jesus. The church was not instructed to live really good lives, and then maybe, hopefully, someone will want to be a Christian. The church was not instructed even to invite people to their worship services and and to hope that they catch the gospel by osmosis. The church is called to go, and as it goes, to make disciples. This is intentionally going out there where the people are, making disciples, and then bringing them into the community of Christ's followers, the church. And we see this corroborated elsewhere. For instance, in Acts 1.8, Jesus is talking to his disciples one last time before his ascension. He says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which, by the way, is where they were at the time, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So where is the mission? It starts here but goes there. It has a trajectory. It's going. And as we consider what we've been reading in the book of Acts, this fledgling church is actually being very effective where they are in Jerusalem, right? Uh, The apostles are testifying. The Christians were actively engaged in evangelism. Thousands were being added to their number. In fact, we saw that the church was growing exponentially. I wish I could have a taste here in this church, here in this community, of what the early church experienced right there in Jerusalem. And yet, from what we've been reading, it's also clear that the church hasn't been going either. Remember, the gospel was to go from Jerusalem, which is where they were, to all of Judea and Samaria, and then from there to the ends of the earth. But as of now in our reading, the the gospel hasn't even left Jerusalem. And in our passage for today, we see the early church receive a push forward. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. We're going to read today, and as you're turning there, let me just remind you of where we're at. So in our text from last week, a Christian man by the name of Stephen was arrested. He had been proclaiming the gospel, and a group of people opposed him. They twisted his words, and they made false accusations against him, and so Stephen was arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council the same council that condemned Jesus to death. He was condemned by the religious leaders, and Stephen himself was stoned to death. And our passage today picks up right where we left off in that passage from last week. So again, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, And Saul approved of their killing him, him being Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except for the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. 
going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And so in these few short verses, we see the conclusion of Stephen's story. We also see the beginning of Paul's story. Now, for those of you who are not aware, the Saul being referred to here is the one that we know of as the Apostle Paul, and we'll get to see his story develop in the coming weeks. Further, we see persecution break out against the early church. And while Luke is brief in his description, I want us to take a little time this morning and imagine it, to reflect perhaps on the severity of what the early Christians faced in just these verses that we are uh, reading today. If you remember our study of Acts so far, you know that the apostles have been arrested twice, well, technically three times. Uh, they were arrested, the angel let them out, and they were arrested again. And each time they were threatened by the religious leaders. They were told to stop speaking in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, or else. And this or else was not empty threats. And the apostles knew these weren't empty threats. In fact, after all of this, uh, these were the religious leaders who had condemned Jesus. And if they were able to condemn Jesus, certainly they had the power to condemn Jesus's followers also. And if you recall, the apostles returned to the Christian community after their release from prison, and the church prayed. Now, they took seriously the threats that were made against them by the religious leaders, and they prayed. But they didn't pray like you and I probably would. They didn't pray for safety. They didn't pray for their own protection against these threats that faced them. Instead, they prayed for even more boldness, that they might continue to proclaim the gospel despite what came against them. And here in our passage today, the dam finally broke. The threats that were being made finally became realized. Now, it would be easy to read this passage and to just reflect on the very human problems. For instance, a conflict has erupted between these two parties. The situation escalates. One side employs violence, and the persecuted party is scattered as a result. The party in power celebrates a victory. However, I, don't, I think this is a little short-sighted to look at just this. After all, here's the important question, perhaps. Where is God while all of this is happening? For instance, where is God while the church is being attacked with such force that Luke actually writes that Saul began to destroy the church? Where is God while Christians, both men and women, were being dragged away from their homes, dragged away from their kids, dragged away from their communities, and placed in prison cells? Where is God while Christians are being caused to flee for their lives, abandoning their homes that their families have lived in for generations, abandoning their jobs, their families, their communities, penniless to live as strangers in other regions? After all, this question of where is God is, is certainly applicable, is certainly appropriate. Remember, God has been clearly engaged so far throughout the events that we read about in the book of Acts, in the events of the early church. For instance, he sent his spirit at Pentecost in a powerful way, such a powerful way that everybody took notice of what was happening. He sent his angel to release Peter and John from prison just a short while before this. But the all-powerful God did not stop this persecution 
from breaking out against the church. Why? And I would suggest to you that the church was not moving out with the gospel, so God gave them a push. That might seem like a bold statement. Certainly, as we read this passage, Luke makes no mention that God caused this. In fact, the historical facts of the passage indicate that, indicate that it was the religious leaders making good on their threats uh, and persecuted the church and caused them to scatter. Yet I would suggest a couple things to you, that even if God did not orchestrate this persecution, one, he knew it would happen. Two, he had the power to stop it. Three, he didn't stop it. And four, the persecution actually helped to accomplish God's purposes. And we see this clearly in our passage. There were two key phrases in the verses that we just read. The first one was this. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Again, what were the marching orders? What was the trajectory that the gospel was intended to go? From Jerusalem to all of Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And what happened as a result of this persecution that broke out against the church? The church moved from Jerusalem to all throughout Judea and Samaria. Again, I'd suggest that the church was not moving out with the gospel as it was supposed to, so God gave them a push. The second key phrase in what we just read is this, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So they weren't just pushed out, and that was the end of the story, but the gospel was now advancing where it was intended to go. Again, the church wasn't moving out, so God gave them a push. But I know what you might be thinking, at least many of you, for modern American Christians, uh, this seems uh, like a hard pill to swallow. In fact, it might even go against our modern sensibilities. We like to imagine that God just wants to provide us with personal happiness and safety in this life. But if we got to ask the question, is, is this an accurate or even a fair understanding of God and what is of ultimate importance. You know, I had a conversation with a gentleman in this town this past week, and I told him honestly that the church in America is largely stagnant. The mo uh, most Christians give God a piece, perhaps a percentage, and usually a small one, of their life. But they don't give it all. His response was so very telling of the state of the church in this country, he said this to me. He said, I feel like I give a lot of my time and energy to God. In fact, more than many people do. If I gave him much more, I wouldn't have much time for my life. And there it is. My life. And out of, the gener and out of my generosity, I'll give some of it to God, even while we sing songs like The Wonderful Cross. You know, we sing that in this church, The Wonderful Cross. Have you ever paid attention to the lyrics you're singing? Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. Friends, we are so busy holding on to my life, my life, my life, that we have completely missed it even when we sing the lyrics to The Wonderful Cross because we're not called to any longer live like it's my life. We're called to come and die 
that we might truly live in Christ, that he might now live through us. Where does this come from? Several places in the New Testament. I'll give you one verse by Paul in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so before we belong to Christ, we live to serve ourselves. We reigned as gods of our own hearts, our own minds, our own lives. We endeavored to please ourselves. We set our own priorities. The problem is, while things were supposed to change, many of us live like that. It's still the case today. When we gave our lives to Christ, that way of life should have ended. Even if the many facets of our lives, for instance, family, home, work, hobbies, even if these things didn't change, it all came now under the dominion of Christ. It all became for his glory. It all became opportunities for him to live his life through us. We weren't born again, you know, regenerated by the Spirit to live the same way we lived before, but that Christ might now live his life through us. And that means that in all things, his priorities are our priorities. It means, like another famous hymn goes, I surrender all. Not some. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Friends, unless we view the world through this lens, we cannot view the world rightly. I read this passage and I can't help but think that if it happened in our time, this persecution that broke out against the early church, if it had happened in our time, it would have been different. It would have went perhaps a little something like this. Persecution broke out against the church, and so Christians stopped going to church or stopped admitting that they were Christians so that they wouldn't be persecuted. Or perhaps something like this. Persecution broke out, and Christians were bitter against God because he allowed them to go through such misery. I hate to say it, it sounds mean, but can we be honest for a second? If this persecution broke out against the church in America today, would it be like what we read about in the early church who were scattered, and yet while they were scattered, they began to proclaim the gospel everywhere they, were, everywhere they went? Or would we pretend we weren't Christian or even give up on Christ so we wouldn't be persecuted? Would we mute our message and would we just be bitter at God because of what he's allowed us to endure? How quickly Christians tend to forget the words of Jesus. He says this in John 16, 33. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You know, Jesus didn't promise you health, wealth, and success, and happiness, and your best life now. He didn't do that. That's not in Scripture. He told you you would have trouble but we could still yet have peace in him. A chapter earlier in John 15, verses 18 through 20, he says this, if the world hates me, keep in mind, or if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. 
If they obeyed my teaching, they would obey yours also. So Jesus said that his followers would have hardship. This didn't come as a surprise to the early church, and it wouldn't come as a surprise to us if we understood that our life was no longer our own. Again, Christians, if, if the world treats you all nice, you know, and, and happy, then you have probably conformed just a little too much to the image of the world. What did Jesus say here? He has chosen us out of the world. And because of that, the world hates us as it hated him. Now, I promise I haven't avoided the question I raised earlier. Where was God while the Christians were being persecuted, being driven from their homes, being led away to prison? Where was God? It's a good question. God was allowing a temporary hardship to secure the greater good. I'll say it again. You may not like it any better the second time, but I'm going to say it anyway. God was allowing a temporary hardship to secure a much greater good. Now, we've seen it before in Acts. We've seen it a couple times. Probably the best example is Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, Ananias and Sapphira sinned, sure. But did their sin warrant such a strong punishment? God ended their lives. And yet, as we saw at this crossroads moment in the early church, when Satan was attempting to derail the vehicle of God's salvation, God intervened to course correct, to keep it on track. Now, assuming Ananias and Sapphira were truly Christians, believe me, they immediately went to be with the Lord, and they're going to enjoy all the blessings of eternal life forever. They don't miss out on anything. However, their temporary earthly existence was sacrificed for the greater good. That the gospel would go forth throughout the world and throughout history in preparation for Christ's second coming. And in our passage today, Christians were being persecuted, driven out, arrested. This was not an easy thing for them to endure. But the gospel moved forward on in its trajectory. The gospel was advancing as it was supposed to, and we are all here today in this room celebrating our salvation because of what took place in the past to keep the gospel moving forward. Friends, we need to recognize that this life we live is no longer ours if we've given our life to Christ. It belongs to him. He purchased it. He owns it. In fact, he purchased it with his own blood. Friends, we need to recognize that this life we live is temporary, And that we're to store up treasures in heaven, not here, in heaven, which is permanent. Friends, we need to recognize that the kingdom is yet to come, and we need to stop living as though this was our kingdom. Friends, we need to stop believing that we are to live our best life now, because Jesus never promises us that. He promises that our best life is yet to come when he returns, and so we desperately need to long for that day. The mission, the advance of the gospel from Jerusalem to all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, that is still the mission today. The early church didn't complete it. It hasn't been completed in the past 2,000 years, and so now we have inherited it. And this is apparently a day for good questions. Let's ask another one. One might ask, how can it not have been accomplished in 2,000 years? I mean, come on, how big is the world? Couldn't we have gotten this job done? And I would suggest that for much of that time, the church has not taken its mission seriously. 
And if I'm being perfectly honest, most of the church in America today does not take the mission seriously either. We've settled for the scraps we've had in this broken world instead of longing for the bounty of the world to come. And Jesus told us when this kingdom would come. He told us when we would receive our reward. It's right here in Matthew 24, 14. He says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Friends, it hasn't come yet because the mission is not over. The mission is not complete. The Apostle Peter agrees with this in his epistles. 2 Peter 3.9, he says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why hasn't he returned? Because the mission isn't complete. And dare I remind us, friends, if God was willing to bring persecution, even, upon the early church, to push them forward, why would we imagine that he would not do the same with us today? Again, not because he's mean. He's not a mean God. He's a loving one, just as we sing about, just as we believe, just as Scripture depicts. But he's also the God who loves us and therefore disciplines us as his children who leads us as the head of his church, who sacrifices even sometimes their comfort and their temporal existence so that people are not separated from him forever in eternity. There's a day coming when the battle will be over, when the mission will be complete, and when we can begin to forget the hardships and the toil of this life and enjoy the blessings of God for all eternity. But in the meantime, we have work to do. And how we view the way we live our lives matters. How we view our priorities matter. How we view what's of ultimate importance matters. And so in closing today, I want to read to you this poem by C.T. Studd. I'm sure you've heard at least part of it uh, at a time or two in the past. But I want you to hear these words and let them be our challenge together today. He says, two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a brief few years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Thank you. 